So, Connor, I hear we have a special guest from our friendly neighbor to the north today. Oh, South Dakota. No, Connor, Canada. Oh, 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 I gotcha. Yeah. Today we have uh, Dr. Elena Bennett of McGill University. She is the professor and the Canadian Research Chair in Sustainability Science. Dr. Bennett is also an affiliate of the Gund Institute for Ecological Economics at the University of Vermont. Uh, Among her many achievements, Dr. Bennett coordinated the Scenarios Working Group of the Millennial Ecosystem Assessment, led by the UN. And she's been a part of advisory boards for a number of global organizations, but she is kind enough to take time out of her busy schedule to speak with us today about her research and its relation to ecological resilience. Okay, very exciting. Uh, Dr. Bennett, really excited to have you on the podcast. I'm happy to be here. So just as kind of a primer on what we're doing here, welcome to WHRA. What the heck is resilience anyway? This podcast is all about resilience. We talk about different resilience concepts. We talk about how uh, these concepts relate to practical things that you see in the world. How can people take these ideas and use them in their everyday lives or or spot them in their everyday lives. So um, if everybody's ready, I think we have a few questions that we're going to ask. We want to keep it in a fairly conversational style, but uh, hopefully this will be good for everybody. Yeah, I think so. So to start off, I just have an initial question for you, Dr. Bennett. We've explained in a previous podcast the difference between what ecological resilience is and what engineering resilience is. Um, My first question for you then is, how would you define resilience? How would I define resilience? So when, when I think about resilience, my mind immediately goes to... Uh, thinking about a system that has the capacity to continue to do what we think it should do or have some essential processes, um, even as other things are happening outside that system that may be pushing it in in different directions. And so to Mm -hmm. me, that takes a mixture of uh, some stability or persistence, which I think we're pretty good at most of the time, but it also takes some adaptability and and even some transformation when that is needed. So I like to think about persistence, adaptability, and transformation, and how the three of those together come come together to form a resilient system. Okay, very good. Yeah, and how did you first come to uh, hear about ecological resilience, and then how did you sort of make the transition to using it in your own research? So I um, did my master's and my PhD in Steve Carpenter's Mm -hmm. lab at the University of Wisconsin in the late 90s and beginning of the 2000s. And that was right about the time that uh, the the Resilience Alliance was forming. And so Steve, as a founding member of that, was really excited about the concepts and the ideas that were coming out of his meetings with this uh, group of people. And so we were just kind of bathed in that, in the lab. And so it's it's never been a central focus of my research in the sense that I'm not trying to answer questions about how resilience works, but it is the milieu in which everything that I do exists. So when I look at a system, I think automatically about right. what features are making it more or less resilient. So, yeah, it's it's been a long time that it's there as the 
background of what I do and what I think about. Yeah, I think that's something that we try to drive home in this podcast is it being a framework for thinking of a tool that you can use no matter the question. And that's a backbone of how systems operate. Yeah, it often makes me just step back and take a look and think about, well, how does this work from a systems perspective? So, you know, instead of taking a question at face value, I'll think, Uh, Is that the right way to define the system? Do I have the boundaries correctly? All the kinds of things that we do in resilience-oriented research, that that ends up being my first approach rather than, um, you know, oh, I'm going to use a method from plant biology to answer this question. It's like, let, let me take back a step and think about and draw the system and the connections and think about the feedbacks. Yeah. So like a a framework for thinking through a system almost. Yeah. Yeah. It's a framework and it's a, um, it's almost like a gut level sense, right? So (laughs) if, if you, let's say come through a, a, a program that you're studying or, or whatever way that you've been educated or the way that you work where, you don't necessarily talk about, let's say, alternate stable states or or don't even know that that exists, right. then when you look out at the landscape here that we were just driving around and, and looking at the prairies and you see a certain thing, you know, you see some some grasses and some trees and some houses. But if you've studied or learned about alternate stable states, then you see a system that is um, a grassland system being invaded by cedars and these two alternate stable mm-hmm. states. And you're thinking about how the world moves back and forth between those. And mm-hmm. so um, it just influences the very thing that you think you're seeing when you look at a system. Do you think it, it influences you in terms of wanting to be a more actively interdisciplinary in terms of like, working with economists or working with people outside your field and knowing that not just one discipline can sort of solve these larger problems? I do. It's hard to know where does that drive for me come Mm -hmm. just from the drive to answer real problems or does that drive come from a focus on on resilience? But I think certainly the kinds of questions that we're asking that have real-world implications, I mean, even this question about cedars invading uh, prairie grasslands in Nebraska and the Midwest, you can't answer that question only from a plant biology perspective. Yeah, and you can't answer it only from an economic perspective or only from a, a legal perspective or only from any other perspective either. So it, it pushes you right into a place where you have to acknowledge other ways of seeing the system. Yeah, of course. So a lot of your work is tied to assessing ecosystem services. Uh, Some of your most well-known work involves the Millennium Ecosystem Services Assessment. Uh, Can you explain for our listeners what the term ecosystem services means? Sure. (laughs) That's that's a a tough one. So so I take a very uh, simple approach to ecosystem services. And to me, it is just the benefits that people are able to obtain from nature or from ecosystems. Where it starts to get complicated is if you're trying to define exactly where is the boundary between 
nature and the service. So is the mm-hmm. service the actual delivery of the benefit or is the service the natural capital that allows that benefit to be provided? And people kind of stop off in all different places along that continuum and say, okay, this is the service and that's what I'm going to measure. And and to be fair, I think I probably do that too and probably stop off in different places depending on the question that I'm trying to ask. Sure, and the, yeah thing I'm trying to get at. (laughs) Sure. And there's been some controversy, of course, over the ecosystem service term now with people also talking now about nature's contributions to people, which maybe does some work towards trying to split off what is the part where nature is contributing to people's Mm well-being versus the parts where other things are contributing to people's well-being, the role of people in in that. Interesting. So trying to maybe narrow or define exactly where the physical aspects of nature provide very tangible, positive benefits to people. Am I understanding that correctly? I, yeah, that's right. So so one of the, a, a good example that I often use is about clean water. And so if you want clean water, there's a number of different ways you can get clean water. You could uh, build a wetland or restore a wetland and have that wetland treat some, you know, dirty sewage water that runs through that wetland and it comes out the other side clean. And, And that to me would be an example of using an ecosystem to provide a service. You can also provide clean water by building a sewage treatment plant that has, you know, I won't say has nothing to do with nature, but is much more a, a technology driven benefit when I look around at the world, most of what we call ecosystem services come from some mixture of those things. So if you think about food as uh, as an ecosystem service, well, you need some nature and natural capital. You need you know good quality soils and you need water, either water to irrigate or rainwater, and you need um, sunlight and all these things to provide the food, but you also in most places need plows and fertilizers and harvesters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that food, it's coming from a mixture of different things. We certainly need nature to provide it, but there's also a strong role of people in providing that service. And I'm very interested in the the mix of those two, um, which brings to me brings me back to resilience because I hypothesize, I guess is probably the best word for it, that how we choose to provide the services that we want, and in Mm -hmm. particular, the mix of nature and people that we're putting together to get any particular service, plays a role in the resilience of the provision of that service. Makes sense. And that's the story goes back to that, whether or not people conceptualize people as part of nature. Mm -hmm. So that systems thinking gets to sort of, you know, we are part of the systems in which we live. We provide services nature quote-unquote provides services so that's kind of an interesting byproduct that resilience thinking is integrating those two in a way that maybe has not always been done in the ecosystem services evaluation yeah yeah that's exactly exactly it and it's not at all at least from my perspective it's not at all to discount the role of nature or to Uh, say that people can you know oh we can do all of this on our own it's to point out the different aspects of what we were talking about, engineering resilience or stability and resilience that come from those different means of, of production. So, um, you know, I can 
can really pound a farm field with a lot of fertilizers and herbicides and, and pesticides and really push it hard with, uh, with human inputs. Um, but that's probably coercing my system into a particular, uh, a particular state that's mm, going to have sure. an influence on its long-term resilience. Great. If you stop any of those inputs, then the service you're gaining from that system is lost. That's right. Likely. And in some cases, I may have lost the ability to go back to providing that service oh, in mm. another in another way. Right. Um, you know, so pollination is a really good one. When we when we bring in uh, beehives, often they compete with wild bees. And um, if I know I'm bringing in beehives, then I can get rid of some of what might be my native bee habitat in order sure. to put more of whatever crop I'm trying to grow. And so you sort of edge yourself into a system where you no longer have the choice to yeah. go back to a, a native pollinator system. You're yeah. really stuck in your your honeybees every year, even if the price of bringing in those hives goes up or we have colony collapse or whatever else happens. Yeah. Hmm. So you were working with the Millennium Ecosystem Service mm -hmm. Assessment. Can you describe your role with that in the UN a little bit and sort of that earlier project? Yeah, so that was my um, postdoc, mm -hmm. was working with the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment. And um, my role in particular was with the scenarios working group. So that project had uh, four working groups, one on the current conditions and recent trends, which was really sort of the bulk of the assessment. Um, then one was on responses, so policy options. How should we be responding to those trends? What things do we need to augment? What things do we need to change? Um, then there was us in the scenarios group, and our job was then to say, okay, you thought about the last 50 years, what's going to happen in the next 50 years? And not as a prediction, but just as a, what are the range of possibilities? Okay. Uh, and then there was a subgroup sub-global sub assessment group that was really thinking about um, at a smaller than global scale, how do all of these uh, these things happen? And so for the scenarios, we really were built on what the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change had been doing. They always have scenarios in their assessment reports. And we wanted to then also have the same thing in our assessments, but in a way right. that would look not just at climate and the geophysical things, but that would also incorporate ecosystems and ecological resilience and all of those sorts of concepts into potential futures for the planet. Absolutely. Yeah. At least one paper that you co-author on featured a concept called ecosystem services bundles. Mm -hmm. uh, these bundles were developed based on an analysis of ecosystem services combined with uh, government administration boundaries mm -hmm. in Quebec. So I guess to start off as kind of a general question, uh, what do you mean by ecosystem services bundles? And if that's too broad, we can break it down. No, that's a, it's a really good question. It's, it's um, uh, when I think about bundles, I think about ecosystem services that go together on a landscape. And so that might mean uh, services where you have a lot of provision of those services together. So in the case of Quebec, what we tend to find is where we have carbon sequestration, that's also where we get more recreation, um, that might be where we get more deer hunting. So you can think of like a forested landscape where sure. we're sequestering a lot of carbon, we're producing maple syrup, we have some recreation, maybe cottages. 
um, and they go together. Um, part of that going together for me is also services that are always low when those services are are high. I so see. in the case of Quebec, that's often agriculture. Gotcha. Um, mm-hmm. Or You're we have, have a heavily forested place where there's some agriculture and there's going to be some balance between you can't get every service from every landscape. That, that's right. So yeah. it's a way of thinking about what goes together on the landscape, what has trade-offs, what has synergies. And the, the reason the concept was interesting to me was um, I really wanted to know how much flexibility there is in a bundle. Like, are you, you know, when I look at a landscape and it looks a particular way, you know, it's covered in forest, does that mean that I'm going to get essentially these services and never those services? Mm -hmm. Or is there some possibility to go mucking about in there in a way that, um, especially for me, that eliminates trade-offs or that amplifies synergies so that, you know, if you think about the classic agricultural case where you tend to have a lot of agriculture, you also tend to have fairly low water quality because of the fertilizers that we're using and the runoff of those fertilizers. Um, and there's a lot of people working on how can you still have agricultural production but reduce that impact on, on water quality. So that's a sure. really classic case of um, somebody taking at least two services and trying to see how flexible they are. And what I was interested in is like, okay, so what happens when there's a dozen Sure. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Does does um, identifying these bundles, does that make it easier to speak with policy people or with, you know, landowners in some sort of way where you can say, hey, you know, there's this one service that maybe is not the one that you were immediately focused on. But if you, you know, do this particular action, it also helps the service that you're interested in over here because they're linked. Does it sort of help in that regard? Yeah, it does. I find it just gives us a way to talk about a thing that can get very academic very quickly in a way that's a little bit more grounded and hands-on. So if I show someone a picture of a part of their landscape and say, when your landscape looks like this, you're going to get a lot of these services, they can immediately say, oh, I'm I'm interested in this. Or um, the farmers in my landscape can say, aha, I'm producing food, but I'm also producing a landscape that people find is aesthetically beautiful. And and I should find a way to capitalize on that somehow instead of just producing it for free. Maybe I can have agrotourism or... Yeah, I could definitely see agrotourism, ecotourism interest based on that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have always really liked agricultural areas. I know not everybody does, but to me, they're very beautiful. And all the places that I've worked that are agricultural, it is a central part of how people see themselves. So when I was was starting out and I was working in Wisconsin, um, somebody else, not me, published a paper basically saying that maybe the easiest way to clean up the very eutrophic lakes in Madison would be to just buy up all of the agricultural land in the watershed and convert it to prairie. And then they went and showed how much that would cost (laughs) and then looked at the, um, I believe it was the increased tax value of houses on the lake that would presumably happen if you cleaned up those lakes and said, this is a no brainer. We've got more than enough money to do this. But the town really didn't like it and people really didn't like it because 
driving around that county and looking at the beautiful agricultural landscape mm-hmm. was part of what they felt like made it feel like home. Yeah. And they weren't interested in the landscape. There was, you know, sure, yeah. a bunch of unused prairie. And that was sort of interesting. It was like, oh, you forgot a service that's being provided mm-hmm. here, which is the beauty of this um, of this landscape in your effort to just focus on two. Yeah. And, um, I mean, that to me is like a resilience perspective or a systems perspective coming right back at you and saying, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, you defined your system wrong. You thought your yeah. system was only making two services, but actually it's making a bunch of them. Yeah, it sort and, of drives home the importance of like local knowledge, like knowing the people that you're working with. Like you, like for me, I'm not from an agricultural area. I'm from a more suburban city area. And so if I went into that area, I might have the same idea. Oh, why don't we buy up all this and turn it into prairie? But it, what matters is, you know, people that are there as well. So it's... Yeah. yeah. Listening listening is a very important and extremely underrated skill. Yeah. How big of a skill has that become? This sort of going back to the millennial assessment and sort of your global work. How big of a skill has that really become for you in terms of working? You know, you've worked locally in Canada, mm-hmm. in Wisconsin, and then now that you're looking at sort of larger scales, how do you tackle that and the needs of so many? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm curious as we scale up the work that we've been doing in Montreal, how we're going to accomplish that same level of listening. Because yeah. I, I can tell you that in the area outside of Montreal, it was even there, it was really hard. And that was quite constrained in terms of the number of people, the number of different towns that we were working with. It was small. Mm-hmm and relatively constrained. So it was maybe not easy to get every stakeholder in the room, but it was reasonably easy to get the right kinds of representation in the room and to have a small enough room that you felt like people could really listen to each other and engage and have the kinds of hard conversations. When you take it from that scale up to a whole country, I I don't know. And And I don't think anybody knows there's a lot of work now on you know what are the skill sets that you need to do this you know sometimes called translational ecology or knowledge to action ecology and a lot of that is about listening and empathy and and all of those things but i haven't seen much on how you scale that beyond a case study yeah check back in five years yeah i mean that's where (laughs) hopefully all this is going right is trying to figure out how to answer global problems with a framework like resilience but those challenges are going to be there. Yeah. I'll pitch this as a question and answer or not, but just kind of thinking back through some of the stuff we've discussed on ecosystem surface bundles, you know, how could we use that mindset to potentially create more resilient social ecological systems? Um, going back to our discussion of the eutrophic lakes mm-hmm. in, in Madison, uh, it was it's clear that the social aspect of that social ecological system uh, was kind of ignored, right? We talked about the physical properties that could be done, as well as the financial uh, incentives or um, capacity there to to see something done. But um, we also need to factor in socially, not just what the system looks like, but what people think it ought to look like. Mm-hmm. Um, so could an analysis of ecosystem service bundles be used as a way to either improve what uh, improve systems that we we like and we want to keep around or potentially change social ecological systems that we 
think need to be shifted to a, a better system? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. And I, I think as a first approach to that question, I think that what the bundles analysis does is expand our vision of what the system is. So, you know, what it, it makes you look out at the system and hopefully see more parts of it or see more of when I look at an agricultural system to not just see food, but to see the other things that are happening, the other processes that are happening in that landscape, the other things that we might want to maintain in a resilient state. Sure. Or the features that are that are helping to maintain that agriculture in a resilient state too, so that you don't just see um, uh, the way, if I were a very traditional economist, for example, I might look at an agricultural landscape and calculate the value of that by understanding how much corn is being sold and at what price per bushel. And now I've got a dollar value on my landscape. Mm -hmm. It's a really different view to say, oh, but it's also providing aesthetic beauty and how much is that worth? And um, there's nutrient uh, cycling and regulation that's happening underneath that production that's allowing that food production to happen and and what's the value of that in dollars or in something else and so to, to me it's a way to remind ourselves that that there's more to the system than meets the eye very interesting yeah trying to make tangible some of these intangible benefits that yeah, and it's I, I struggle with it sometimes because it's not an I mean ecosystem services in a sense is a new ish concept, right? I sure. mean around the late nineties when Gretchen Daly's book Nature Services came out and then the Millennium Assessment and it starts to sort of take off. So it's maybe, you know, a twenty-five-ish year old concept, but the idea of multifunctionality has been around for way longer <laughs> than that, which is really, at least the way I use ecosystem services, it's kind of the same idea, but for whatever reason, it's appealing to the government agencies that I work with and the decision makers that I work with as a way to to comprehend the system. So, and that's that's how science works, right? We're just constantly yeah. building on old yeah. ideas. And sometimes a little bit of branding. And a little <laughs> bit of branding. And, and, you know, a little bit of branding with a really big project that involves more scientists than had ever been in a single project before yeah. generates a lot of excitement and enthusiasm. Right. And, you know, I think we see that happening now with, with IPBES, the Intergovernmental Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. Mm-hmm. And their use of nature's contributions to people and it's starting to like generate some enthusiasm which is great yeah absolutely yeah so sort of talking about the branding and labeling and naming mm-hmm. a little bit one thing that's spoken about a lot in your work is um planetary boundaries mm-hmm. and so one thing that we discuss obviously in ecological resilience are thresholds and tipping points and this sort of you know in the ball and cut model that little hump that you go over and then fall into mm-hmm. another uh, alternative stable state or basin. Do you see these things as analogous or is there some branding going on here or what What makes something a planetary boundary? Yeah, so the idea behind planetary boundaries, and, and I wasn't involved with the initial formulation of the idea, although I got involved later as uh, one of the people helping to quantify the location of the mm-hmm. planetary boundary for phosphorus cycling. But the the original idea really was to think about 
thresholds um, and thresholds where you would get a sudden change in yeah. either ecosystem state or ecosystem process, or if I say maybe not ecosystem, but like global ecosystem mm-hmm. or global planetary uh, state was to yeah. find that that edge. Um, and that was the idea behind planetary boundaries. Um, but to do it, you know, not just, you, you could imagine those ball and cup diagrams or, or alternate stable states for many different kinds of ecosystems. But here it was really about planetary scale. What are fundamentally the processes that we need to pay attention to if we want to keep Earth in the Holocene mm. and not move out of this fundamentally stable period? Yeah. Um, one thing is, if you'll forgive me reading a quote for a second, is yeah. in one of your papers, there was this point that said, the current levels of boundary processes and the transgressions of boundaries that have already occurred are unle- unevenly caused by different human societies and different social groups. The wealth benefits that these transgressions have brought about are also unevenly distributed socially and ge- geographically. And so it's sort of like, mm-hmm. not everyone is contributing equally to some of these passing of these planetary boundaries. That's right. How do you see moving forward, balancing our need to obviously make changes or else mm-hmm. we're going to exit you know, the Holocene and you know, run away climate change and things like this, but also making sure that sort of the equalness of, of wealth and, and, and you know, development continues. I mean, this is the, to me is the million dollar yeah, question. And so too. if you look at Kate Rayworth's work where she has the donut Right. So it's so the on the outside ring, you have the planetary boundaries, which are sort of the biophysical do not cross. And the inside ring, I think she calls it like the social floor, Hmm. which is basically like if you cross that to the inside, now you've got communities or countries or whatever somewhere that are not receiving their, you know, what they need to survive. And so that I, I, I wish I could remember what the processes are around that mm-hmm. ring, but I, I don't. But it's right. basically making sure that people have enough to survive and that you know where we want to be is in the donut that's described by that <laughs> yeah. social mm-hmm. floor and the planetary yeah. boundaries and that there should be some space, sure. um, uh, some space in between those two. Um, kind of a Goldilocks thing. Yeah, yeah. Finding yeah. right balance. And so your question though was about, you know, how do we go about doing that? And... I, I don't think there are easy answers, except that it's pretty clear that here in, you know, if you want to call it the global north or the rich countries, we clearly need to do something yes. about our consumption, um, whether that is like consumption of goods or whether that's, you know, the number of airplanes that we get on and, and fly around or, or, you know, however you want to define that. I'm hopeful a little bit about some like leapfrogging development where um, you see countries say, well, listen, we don't need, we don't have any telephone service. We don't need to go through the whole process of developing landlines and trucking landlines everywhere. Let's just go straight to cell phones. I mean, that's maybe not a great example because our cell phones good or bad you know but you know are there ways that we could just leapfrog maybe it's an energy development we don't need to go through a whole bunch of coal and dirty energy maybe there's places where we can just leapfrog straight out to much cleaner energy sources absolutely i have no idea if that's enough yeah Mm -hmm. yeah to get us where we need to go but but to me 
I've been debating this actually in a, in a paper that I'm working on with a group of whether it's, it's a paper about sort of earth stewardship and the question is whether equality fits or not. And I think where we've landed is basically you can't talk about earth stewardship without talking about equality. Yeah, it's absolutely. just fundamental. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to have the manpower and the people taken care of to even start addressing these questions as well. Because if people are constantly fighting for their survival, how do you then work towards stewardship, you know? Yeah. Yeah, almost that's right. that Maslow's hierarchy of needs sort of thing. That's right. Or how do we do those at the same time? One of the debates that we often had in the Millennium Assessment was the the um, some of the people really thought, in a way, with what you're saying, like we've got to bring everybody out of poverty first. That's going to create a bunch of environmental problems, but then we'll go back and fix those. Those of us who are a little more resilience-minded started thinking about, oh, some of those problems aren't going to be fixable. So how do you bring people out of poverty but avoid the unfixable kinds of, of problems? And I think that's where the equity and earth stewardship question lies. Like clearly we can't ignore the fact that there are people who don't have enough food and who are really struggling and who aren't at that social floor. But somehow we have to do that in a way that isn't pushing past the boundaries at the same time or pushing further sure. past mm -hmm. them. And maybe that's why it's good to have those boundaries defined or else you won't know how far yeah, you can. That, that's it. And, and it gives us, I think, also, you know, some of, of the work on the planetary boundaries made really clear that we just don't have enough monitoring of some of these processes and some of the things that are happening to even know where we are relative to the boundary. And so mm -hmm. that maybe is a little bit of a call to arms to scientists to say, hey, we need more information about this to understand the state of the planet. Mm -hmm. Some heavy subject material, of course. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, often when we talk about uh, issues related to the Anthropocene or the climate, um, a lot of a lot of the subjects in ecology are pretty doom and gloom. But mm -hmm. one project that you've been involved in is uh, creating seeds of a good Anthropocene, yeah. hoping to bring a little bit of optimism into a otherwise fairly yeah, dark, very dark subject area. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully realistic optimism. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Um, so maybe you could explain to us what a seed is and perhaps mm -hmm. what some examples of some seeds are. Sure. Um, so when we started this project, we had a bunch of things in, in mind, but we really wanted to know about the examples of things that people were doing to try to solve problems or make their lives better in some way. And, and all of us who were involved in getting this thing started felt like there's lots of examples of those things. People are really taking active strides to improve the, the social ecological system that they find themselves part of and so what would happen if we could collect a bunch of examples of that and try to learn from them you know mm -hmm. why some of them seem to like scale up and grow so we have mm -hmm. like the transition towns in in the uk um, which was really about creating towns that were um, both socially and ecologically sustainable and so why did that start in one town and has now grown to hundreds of towns Whereas other things just didn't, there didn't grow. Why do some sort of deepen in place where you see, you know, oh, we're going to start by just, um, we're going to green this schoolyard. 
And then you get a bunch of parents involved with greening the schoolyard. And then the parents say, oh, this would be another neat project. And then it doesn't necessarily grow town to town to town, but it grows objective to objective to objective in the mm-hmm. same town. So okay. now they're doing not just the schoolyard, but a bunch of other places. Sure. And we were just curious about, well, what, what creates that potential? And then once we started collecting those seeds, we realized there was a lot of potential to use those in scenario development and to try to do more storytelling about how do we get from here to a better future globally. Yeah. So that's a relatively new project. That's a relatively new project. And and I think um, I, I'm really enjoying working on it. I'm really enjoying um, especially the scenarios mm-hmm. having come from this, the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment scenarios and being a pretty avid reader of the uh, IPCC scenarios and feeling like um, those often, including the ones that we developed in the Millennium Assessment, define a sort of endpoint and then guess about how we might jump to that endpoint, or they assume that there's about four or five processes that are the levers that are controlling everything. You know, mm-hmm. so it's going to be about population growth and consumption and mm-hmm. technology. Um, whereas what we found as we started investigating the seeds that things like gender dynamics played a much bigger role in how those seeds were evolving. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't ever make it into the global scenarios. And so it started to give us this hint of things that underneath were really important to defining how people's futures were unfolding and probably should show up in those scenarios a little bit more. Yeah, that's awesome. It goes back to what you're saying is more data is is needed to sort of inform our next steps. Yeah, and and, more information and better modeling Mm -hmm. setups, because I think what happens is there's a big focus in those global scenarios on quantitative modeling, because that's seen to have scientific validity. And so we want to model, you know, exactly what is it going to take to stay underneath a two degree uh, climate change. Um, even in the Millennium Assessment, we talked for a little while about did we really need to model this because we felt like models were not going to capture the complexity of a social ecological sure. system. Yeah, yeah, but but it was really felt, and I think this was probably right, that the models were important to to being able to telegraph our scientific validity of what we were doing. We weren't just making it up. But stuff like gender dynamics or uh, empathy or the quality of people's conversations with one another. I don't think we know how to model that stuff. No, yes. It's a little more intangible, (laughs) Um, at least right now. Yeah. And so, you know, is that a call to scientists to figure out how to model that or at least figure out how do you incorporate that? I think it is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Okay, well, um, just to wind things down, we want to pitch some open-ended questions for you to feel free to talk about things that you're really excited about right now. So um, one thing I'd like to ask you about is um, if you could talk about one of your new projects, uh, Natural Sciences and Engineering Resilience Council of Canada. I know you're involved with the ResNet. Yeah, so let me just correct that. Um, So... Uh, it's NSERC is the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council. So that's like the Canadian version of NSF. Um, So that's our funding. And so we call it ResNet for short, conveniently (laughs) avoiding (laughs) that. 
Um, and so uh, what ResNet is, and, and ResNet is, is specifically vague. Some people see that as the resource network or resources network. Um, some people see it as the resilience network. It, for a while, it was ResNet ResNet, ResNet, so the Natural Resources oh Resilience <laughs> Network, which was very confusing. Um, but it builds on the work that we had done in the Monterigie, uh in Quebec, looking at ecosystem service bundles, where we had a community that had a question that they wouldn't have said, oh, this is a question about ecosystem services, but mm -hmm. we could see that it was a question about ecosystem services. And, and in that case, the question was really about um, how should we manage the woodland connectivity between our agricultural landscapes and what kind of green space do we need to maintain this landscape in the state that we want it to be maintained in. Mm -hmm. um, and we were able to go in, we did a lot of work with stakeholders, we did a bunch of measuring ecosystem services and understanding their provision relative to where these woodlands were and the connectivity of the woodlands. Um, we did scenario development with the stakeholders and then we're able to say, OK, for the set of scenarios that you've given us about the possible futures for this landscape, here's the kind of service provision that you can expect and that you can now use that in the development of um, policies or programs or other things that you want to do based on the kind of services that are important to you and, mm -hmm. and okay. how much service development you want. What we're doing now with ResNet is taking that same pattern, so deeply engaged work with stakeholders in small communities where there is some sort of uh, question that we can conceive of as being an ecosystem services related question that has to do usually with trade-offs and production. Mm -hmm. um, and we're working now in six different communities across Canada, all in working landscapes, all with measuring bundles of ecosystem services. Wow. And then trying to scale up from that to say, well, how... How do you monitor these services to begin with? What, mm -hmm. what are the right indicators? How do you define services just to come back to where we started? Yeah. <laughs> what do you need to measure at what scale? You know, all those sorts of monitoring questions. Um, we have some questions about how do we scale up the models? So how do you build ecosystem service models um, that will work in these different settings? Then... Uh, uh, some questions about governance. So yeah. what does all of this imply for governance? And the idea is now by not having just one landscape, but six landscapes and doing cross landscape comparison that you could use all of that to scale up. Sure, I think it's um, more generalized knowledge. That's more generalized yeah. knowledge. Canada's very interested in, at least some parts of Canada are very interested in being a leader in ecosystem service monitoring and especially uh, what the UN calls uh, uh, environmental economic accounting okay. systems. Oh. So how do you develop a census of the environment or a census <laughs> wow. of natural That's capital? Big question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, but what we hope is that we could start to contribute to, well, what would you want to monitor for that? And how would you monitor it? Are you doing this with remote sensing? Are there models? 
Um, so that's the that's the idea. Yeah. What does your team look like for a project like this? <laughs> <laughs> the team is pretty immense. So we have over 40 different researchers okay. from more than a dozen different universities from all the way from uh, Dalhousie in Nova Scotia to the east to University of British Columbia in the west right. and, and everybody in between all the way from uh, the southern parts of Quebec where I am up to the Northwest Territories. Great. We have 40 different uh, industry and government partners who are kind of our stakeholders or our clients who want to have answers come from uh, this research. And then ultimately about 100 uh, students. Wow. PhD students, grad students, everything like that. Wow. PhD students, postdocs, grad students, undergrads. Wow. um, The whole (laughs) nine yards. That's fantastic. It's large. No kidding. I think that another question that we had was... How can our listeners sort of be engaged with ecological resilience in their day-to-day lives? So, you know, we're not all resilient scientists, you know, we're not all scientists at all. So as mm-hmm. land managers, students, you know, everything in between, how do we sort of use this framework? I think the biggest thing for me, and it's a thing that I find myself doing all the time, is whenever I'm faced with a, a question, I try to think about what the boundaries of the system are first before just driving forward to uh, to an answer. So, you know, for example, last night when I gave my talk, somebody was asking me about, well, we have to double food production to meet nutritional needs, um, which is a really important point And it was a really good question. Um, but rather than just take that question at face value, if you step back, then you start to say, well, maybe there's other ways to solve the problem of meeting food needs, like Mm -hmm. reducing food waste or changing trade patterns to get food to where it's needed, rather than just saying what we have to do is intensify production. And and I think that can be true in any system that you're looking at in any question is to say, do I really have the right picture here? Or does the question or answer change if the boundaries of my system change? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great answer. All right, so to wrap up with just uh, one final question, try and end it on an upbeat note. Uh, What work are you currently the most excited about or really interested in for 2020, the new year? For the new year, I guess there's two things. So I I am really excited about ResNet. We're just in the first few months of getting started and I just see huge potential in developing a community of researchers across Canada who are interested in resilience and translational ecology who really haven't worked together before because they're coming from so many different disciplines and fields. So I'm very excited about that. Um, And then I'm also really excited about the seeds of a good Anthropocene. I feel you know, we're often just bombarded by dystopias and bad news and everything's going badly (laughs) and, you know, wah, wah, wah. And and it's not (laughs) that that's not true, but that, according to my colleagues and, and friends who are in the more behavioral psych world, bad news is a really good way to get people not to do something. So if you're trying to get people to quit smoking, not smoke, Bad news and scary things are really good. But if you're trying to get people to take positive action, okay. bad news is a, is actually an incredibly inefficient way to do that. Yeah. What paralyzing, people, maybe. It's paralyzing. Yeah. And so what people need is a vision to work towards. And so okay. what I'm excited about in that project is this multi-scale vision. So if you want to, you can just look at one seed and say, I'm going to do that in my community. Mm-hmm. Or you could look at the whole project and say, 
there's 500 of these, that's amazing. Or you could look at the scenarios and say, ah, that's a vision of a world I want. How can I work towards that? Yeah. It makes and, a ton of sense. Yeah, yes. I think it just gives people something positive to, to drive towards. You know, we're all, maybe not all of us, but many of us sit around and think about, you know, what should I be doing? Does it matter if I don't take get on this airplane and take a flight? Should I be, you know, fighting the power? Should I be, <laughs> yeah. you know, angry yeah. at corporations? Yeah. And this just gives people a way forward that says you can do a thing and doing that thing matters. Yeah, and it sort of gives people an example of people with different skill sets doing things within their skill sets to aim forward. Because if you, you know, if you're trained in a particular field, you know, you're not an ecologist, you're, you know, a, a lawyer, a, you know, someone with an MBA, if you, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. What are other people with your skill set doing that's really positive? Yeah, that's right. Or globally. Mm -hmm. That's it. And it doesn't imply that we all need to do the same thing exactly. or attack the same problem or push in the same direction. It really implies that there's a lot of, of space for people to, as you said, you know, this is a skill set that I've got that I want to bring to this to this problem, which I like that flexibility. You know, yeah, I mean, we, we all know that there's things that we're doing that are are not great for the environment, but we're not all in the same position in terms of our ability to to stop doing those things. Just absolutely. like we all have different skill sets. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Well, that was wonderful. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much for yes. speaking with us. <laughs> Thanks, my pleasure. Thank you so it's been much, really, Dr. really Bennett. fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this concludes the podcast. We want to, again, thank Dr. Bennett for taking the time to come in and chat with us. It's been fantastic. Yeah. So with that, we will see you all on the next episode.